Welcome to the Make That Money Honey podcast. I'm your host, Sandra Joe, and each week I will be bringing you a combination of interviews and solo episodes with industry leaders in finance, entrepreneurship, and women in business. As a former certified financial planner turned financial coach and entrepreneur, I will be sharing my knowledge on how to have better conversations about money within your marriage, relationships, and family dynamics. I will also be teaching fundamental financial literacy about all of the topics that you wish you learned in school. This podcast will get you to think outside the box, create more abundance in your life, and improve your money mindset. So make sure to follow and tune in weekly, and it would mean the world to me if you shared these episodes with a friend and left me a five-star review. Welcome back for another episode of the Make That Money Honey podcast. I am so, so excited today to have my friend Gabby. Gabby Balsells is a couples therapist and relationship coach living in Connecticut. She works with individuals and couples, helping them build happy partnerships rooted in deep connection and self-worth. She also specializes in working with bicultural couples to merge their different worlds and support them in creating a relationship by their own design. Thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the show, Gabby. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be such a great interview. I mean, we were already talking for half an hour before we hit record. And then I was like, wait, wait, we have to record this because you have so much knowledge. And this is an area that I find so fascinating and the correlation between relationship coaching, couples therapy, and what I do in financial coaching are so they move so in alignment because, you know, couples relationship and their money story can have a big impact on each other. So I am so grateful to have you on the show today and cannot wait to dive in. Thank you. I so agree. I've been working with couples for six years and I do one-on-one around like relationships and emotion. And then with couples and recently two years ago, I started doing premarital therapy And that was one of the things that led me into examining that curriculum a little deeper this year. And this is the first year that I'm actually including a finance module around money stories. And I love that you're reflecting that, right? Because it's like, we did not have that focus around money in couples, like around like licensed family therapists, like that we don't look at that. However, we know that sex, money, trust, are the biggest reasons for divorce. And it makes so much sense. So it was like, oh, actually something's missing, right? So I think our work is going to feed off each other. I'm so excited for this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so true. And the I what you said something there that really caught my attention too, which was the premarital coaching. And that is such a big one. I, you know, went to a bunch of different weddings this year and I can see how much stress and pressure these newlyweds are as they're leading up to their marriage, not just because of the wedding cost itself, but just all of a sudden it's, it it is a mental shift of going from being in a relationship, you know, a common law relationship to all of a sudden the commitment of marriage and the financial implications of that contract as well, right? Because it is a contract that it can cause a lot of strain and pressure on a relationship. So I think that is absolutely amazing that you do 
premarital coaching. Thank you. I realize that part of my mission is helping get the relationship education that we just we should have gotten in school and we didn't, right? So I'm really passionate over giving tools, resources, tips, and I started doing this work with couples therapy, which I love, right? But usually it's couples in their 40s, 50s with 6 years of unhappiness and tension and there's a lot of unpacking and healing. Right. And I started feeling this pull over. I'm so passionate around prevention and maintenance in my own relationship and started bringing that into my work, into helping couples, getting more of a checkup around their relationship um, two years in, three years in, before getting engaged or right after getting married and big transitions, right? Like having children. So I love and I'm gearing my work into more of that premarital, postmarital, right? Like before we actually are in crisis. Absolutely. You you hit the nail on the head. And this is where I feel like our coaching is so in alignment because I, I felt the same when I was working as a financial planner. I was dealing with the people that had, you know, sort of 15 years of marriage under their belt and had well and truly had some sort of, you know, history in in their finances and whatever, but there was this whole other group of people that are in those what I call like to call the the family years in the trenches because it's the getting, you know, proposing, getting married, buying their first home, having small children at home, partner going back to work post maternity. There's about a 10-year period that couples go through at the beginning of their relationship where the most change is going to happen, right? Every year there's a significant change. There's usually a significant financial implication and also relational implication. And I think a lot of couples wait until this crisis arises to start dealing with it rather than being proactive and learning about how to forecast that they know that it's going to be an impact when one person goes on maternity leave. It's going to be a financial impact when they take on a bigger mortgage to upgrade the house so that they can now have more kids, you know, and being proactive in planning that as opposed to responding to it. Exactly. That is so well said because we are normalizing being proactive in our career, right? Like, I work with high-performing, ambitious people too who are getting leadership coaching or have a mentor at work. And there's so much investment of time and energy around career, right? But not around relationship. And I love that you're mentioning the 10 years in the trenches because when you say it like that and we actually break down like you're paying for a wedding, you're getting your new first house that you don't even, maybe you've never had a lease together before. It's like big things that it would make perfect sense that we need more support. So I'm all for normalizing, right? The people that I work with are couples who are in love and they are committed. They have such good intentions. It's like open-hearted people in love with really good intentions. They, they know that they love each other. However, they get in trouble because they don't have the tools. They don't have the communication skills. They don't have the permission slip even to like either reach for help or open up space to talk about. It's just, it's not normalized for us. I know at least for me and all the people that I work with, I did not see that in my parents. I did not see that in family uncles, right? Like, it was just not something that was modeled to me. 
However, there's this big stigma around like I should know how to do it. And then my partner and I should know how to get through this alone successfully. Right. And if not, there's something wrong. So a bit a big part of my work is also normalizing the, hey, this is like the same way that you invest time and energy resources into right planning your future. That is the same thing we're doing. Yeah, or education. It's like you would, you know, if if you want to upskill in your career, as you said, and I love that analogy because we were sort of talking about that before, that when people want to learn more in business, they'll go take a sales course, they'll take a marketing course, they will do a master's degree or something else. And they won't even think twice about, you know, paying to upskill in their education because it's business related. But then when we dig underneath the layers and we say, okay, wait a minute, I, I have insecurities in relationships. I have commitment issues in relationships. I have self-esteem issues in the bedroom or whatever it is, you know, finances, shame around finances. People don't look under the hood and they're very reluctant to invest in fixing what's under the hood instead of, uh, you know, doing an external paint job. Right. And, and it's, it's so fascinating to me that, you know, you and I both work in these industries where, uh, it's almost taboo. People think it's almost, you have to be broken in order to see a financial coach or see a therapist. You are waiting for that crisis to occur before you take that action rather than looking at it more of like a, Hey, I want to, I want to be the best version of myself and have all the tools so that it doesn't happen. Exactly. Look under the head. That's exactly right. And, um, I think this just, even this permission slip, cause part of what I help couples do in shifting this mindset, even just individually, is you're already using a lot of energy around your relationship. Let's instead use that energy into learning, right? So I always say, like, I help you stress less and connect more. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I have almost the exact same tagline in my business. <laughs> I help you stress less and earn more. Oh my gosh, we are meant to that be. Is, I know, this is so funny. I feel like we could talk for hours. We were already talking for so long before this podcast. Yeah, this is like, this is a, we're meant to be. So hopefully listeners will see collaboration in the future. Yeah. <laughs> because what I mean by that is we were talking a bit about either attachment styles or this is mm -hmm. like what this means is the way that you relate to one another around communication, intimacy, right? And so you're either thinking about like I hear a lot of people and it could be men or women but mostly women and this happened for me right you think about something that you want to talk about with your partner 10 times for every one time that you actually bring it up right so that's so much anxiety energy and just a part of the energy leakage in your life that you're using right and on the other side of the spectrum, even if you're not obsessing over it, but you're avoiding and you're hoping your partner won't bring up a fight or an argument, that's also using so much energy to block, right? And not think and avoid. And so- Walking on eggshells. <laughs> walking on eggshells, exactly, right? And like hoping and distracting. And what if instead we use that energy into- sitting down, creating safe space, learning communication skills, getting to the root, right? Sometimes it's, and sometimes it's deep. 
it's therapy sessions. Like I work with people four months, six months, a year, right? There's a lot of trauma, healing, emotional connection that happens. But sometimes, which is really surprising too, sometimes all it takes is a couple sessions on sex education, uh, on permission slips, reframes, and practical steps that actually creates like a, a big change. Yeah. Yep. I love what you said about the the energy, like how much energy you expend on thinking about things and not actually dealing with them. And I think that is definitely something everybody can get better on, whether it's work related, whether it's finances related, whether it's relationship related, because so much of our anxiety, and I know a lot of people deal with anxiety, I know I do personally, and so much of our anxiety is around focusing on things that we can't control and trying to change the outcome of things that we can't control or think we can't control, right? And we spiral in our own head about it. And instead of actually just dealing with it and getting an outcome, we just go in circles, that 10 to one ratio. Exactly. And it's, you know, I just experienced this in my own relationship recently or, you know, relationship breakdown recently, which was, um, I was spiraling and when I actually got my thoughts out clearly and was able to articulate how I felt, it was like this huge weight off my shoulders and it was so well received that it was just like, well, why was I spending so much time over the last three, four or five weeks stressing about this thing as opposed to just talking about it and getting it out in the open and not trying to paint stories about it. You know, it's like painting all these stories in our head and assumptions and and then all you do is once you finally talk about it, you're like, oh, wait, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I love that that was well received because what happens is we've had so many big moments in our life that we share something really personal, really vulnerable, something you're excited about or something that is making you feel really insecure, right? Like a, a bad day at school or a fight with your friends when you were a little girl, right? And either your parents either dismiss that or criticize, right? And we open up with so much love. And when it's not well received, it causes these responses over like, okay, it's not safe to share, right? It's not well received. Oh, maybe this is something we don't talk about, right? In my family. And so it's so out of our awareness because it's not a conscious thought, but it, it becomes locked in. It's like, okay, this is not something that I can bring up, right? And so when we share something, there's this element of uncertainty of, I don't know if it's going to be well received. It feels really risky, right? There's so much risk. And it's like, I'm literally opening my heart and who knows? And so the thinking about doing the thing is actually worse than actually doing the thing. Yeah. Right? And then, and then it, it reiterates our story if it's not well received, because then as you said, it it's that programming that happens when we're a child where we say, mom, I need to tell you something. And they're like, not now I'm busy. And then all of a sudden we tell ourselves a story. Oh, it's not, I'm not important. What I have to say is not important. And then it happens again with our dad. And then it happens again with our cousin. And then all of a sudden we say, oh, wait a minute. What I have to say is no longer important to anyone. So I just won't talk about my feelings at all. Right. And we learn that so young. And then it carries forward with us as an adult. And then if we do it as an adult, that one time that we do get the courage to talk about it and we get shut down, then it reiterates that story in our head of, oh, what I have to say is not important or it's not going to be well received. 
it's amazing how much that programming can last with us through childhood. Same thing with money stories. You know, if people thought about money as growing up, it's generally they feel that that's always going to be a fight as an adult type of thing or that it carries with them. So one of the things that you mentioned there was um, we were talking about uh, being able to open up in relationships. What would you say are some of the reasons that hold people back in opening up other than the programming? And like, what are some of the ways that they can start to work through that and, and be more comfortable sharing so that they don't stay in that sort of spiral mentality? Yeah. So what is actually blocking the speaking up, right? Um, using your voice and opening up is sharing our feelings. So it's either one of those or usually both, right? When we're t talking about opening up. That's how I understand it. And the things that block you from opening up are either these programs around my needs are not important, right? So I'm just, I just dismiss them. I don't even recognize them myself, right? To share. Or it's this programming around when things were brought up in my family by my mom, for example, my dad would blow up right? Or when my dad would share, my mom would get super defensive and it would cause a fight. So I see that both ways, right? It could be the avoidance of a fight. Sometimes it's like a really good intention. Sometimes people don't share. For example, I see this a lot with men around work stress or financial stress. If they're the sole provider um, or a moment of like more pressure, I don't share because I don't want to burden my partner with her getting scared. I don't want to scare her with our financial pressure, right? So I, I'm holding it inside. However, the holding it inside makes them be more stressed, more grumpy, um, less talkative at the end of the day, and their wife notices, right? So a big part of this is realizing that if you're having these feelings inside and you're not sharing, even if you feel like you're a really good actor, your partner notices, right? And that creates blocks between you. Oh, so true. And especially on that note of men being the provider, I think there's a huge level of um, not, not wanting to scare them, but also not wanting to let them down, right? Men have this really burning desire of like needing to show up for their family, for their wife, for their kids, and if they communicate that maybe they lost their job or they can't meet their bills this month, that to them means that they've failed at their role as the provider. And that's a really deep shame thing. That is so important to point out. What men most want is what they say to me is, I want to be her hero, right? And I want to come through. And so when there's something wrong, either I'm not performing or I'm not being strong enough, the, the default is I'm, I'm going to let her down. And I don't want to let her down for me because I would feel ashamed, but I'm also so afraid of what she will think if something bad happens and, and they fire me or I don't have enough money, right? She'll think I'm a failure. Like these stories go really, really deep. Yeah, interesting. So when these stories do come up, what are some of the ways that, I mean, in, in this particular instance, that men can deal with this type of internal talk? Yeah. 
So we were talking about how to notice if they're popping up. So you'll notice more stress. Um, a big one is noticing resentment, is feeling misunderstood. Also, um, like thinking like, oh, my partner doesn't see how much I'm doing for this relationship. I'm not feeling appreciated. These are some signs of something being out of balance. And the way to unpack that is, is twofold, right? One are the thoughts in our head and the stories and the patterns. And the other are the emotions in the body. So it's like the head and the body, the thoughts and the feelings. And that's how you actually notice your patterns. And that's how, also how we heal them, right, in therapy. And so one is getting really clear on, okay, what maybe around this specific example around men, what, what did I learn about men, right? What is the role that I'm playing? Even if you're the wife, right? What is the role that I'm playing in this, in this partnership? What do I expect my partner to do? What is the agreement? Maybe things we've talked about, like conscious agreement and um, informal agreement, something we're just doing. Maybe we never agreed that I would do the chores and he would be the pro. That's just how things worked out, right? And suddenly we're in this dynamic. Um, and that you unpack it, of, wh where did that come from? It always comes from what we saw in childhood, the roles we saw our father play, our mom play, and then start asking like, is this actually serving me? That's a big question, right? Is it, even if this is just the default that I got in an agreement, right? Would I choose this consciously if I had a choice, right? And then if you're noticing something is not working, would, is this actually serving me? Do I want to continue this way? And then you just, all you're doing is noticing the patterns. It happened again, right? This is where it comes from. And then it kind of gives you the permission slip over. Do I want to continue this way? And then you start noticing it, if it's not that clear, right? How does it feel in my body? Does it create more stress, right? Does it feel true? When you ask yourself, okay, do, does this serve me? Does it feel sustainable is a big one that I ask. If the answer seems maybe clear in your mind or maybe not so clear, I would have you like close your eyes and see how it feels in your body. If there's a moment of stress, tension like oh my god it's not sustainable i feel so much pressure what's going to happen with my job then something is off balance right if it does feel okay easeful yes it feels sustainable maybe we have to tweak a, a few things but it's not causing me anxiety okay this is something we can continue right and with couples like a little bit more on the conscious let, let's make it more verbal what we can do is have first a permission slip of we're always going to negotiate. Even if we've been in this relationship for 20 years doing this same thing, we always have permission to change our minds. And that means change our agreements. I love that. Change the way that we're doing things. Even if we fell into this dynamic and we never had a conversation around money, gender roles, um, provider roles, we just fell into it is what I hear a lot of, this is just the thing that worked out, right? I love when I say that I help couples create a relationship by their own design, that means your unique individual strengths, we can combine something that feels like a real complementarity that is just yours. Not the design of your family, not the design of society, not how your friends are doing things, right? 
but yours. And that means that you have permission to innovate and take several iterations of things. And if something is not working, we'll sit down just like you would have like a money date or a communication date, right? You sit down and you're like, hey, honey, this is not working. Let's find a way to distribute chores. Let's find a way to think about our finances. Let's find um, new spaces to create quality time. Let's find some scheduling around an intimacy date, right? Mm -hmm. And even if we've never done it before, we can always change it up. Oh. I just got chills because that is, that was such a good piece of advice that we have the ability to change our mind. And one of the things that I have seen so much either in my own relationships or in couples that I work with is their attachment to their identity of who they are and being like, well, I'm an anxious or I'm an avoidant or I'm a you know, this person, I come with this trauma. And it's like, yes, but you have the ability to heal and change. If you desire the change, if you desire wanting to do different and be different and how you show up, it's like, choose again. You know, Gabby Bernstein says in her books, choose again. And I think it's just, I love that you said, like, we have the ability to choose. We don't have to stay in the same relational patterns that we have been designed to by our family or that we have shown up that way in our previous relationships. We have the ability to choose again. Exactly. I love Gabby. And she says, like, if it's not working, choose again. Yeah. What that One of my favorite is, authors. And it's like, you're right. We fall into default. We fall into patterns of what we know. So this is something you can also just listening right now and you're like, huh, I wonder what I'm sleepwalking to, <laughs> right? Think about your family. Think about your parents. Think about what you admire about their relationship, their marriage, um, and what you don't. And then think about your in-laws, right? And you can even have this conversation with your with your partner. And then you'll start noticing, okay, there, there's a lot of things that we're just repeating because that's what we know, Right. And we forget that we're adults and we can do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> so <laughs> forget, true. Right? It's I know. Like, it's so true. Yeah. And we and that we don't have to, you know, we can break our generational uh, programming. We can choose to be different. I mean, you know, I deal with clients that have all different family backgrounds. Some come from fa significant family wealth. Other comes from having, you know, gambling parents. And, and it's we don't have to follow the same path that we have been programmed to, to understand. Right. It's, and, and I see this a lot with relationships where um, now I want, I do want to circle back to the sort of commitment and the attachment stuff, because I think that this is a really interesting piece of this is that Oftentimes when you see, as you said, the, the male provider doesn't want to let the woman down, what I can find happens a lot of the time is, and it doesn't matter what their financial position is. I remember this one couple that I worked with in Melbourne, the man had a very, very successful security business, like doing security for buildings and all of that. And his business was having a really challenging year and he felt like he needed to leave his wife because he was not showing up as a, as a good husband because his his business was struggling. And I think a lot of men have this 
fear that when they are not coming to the table with, you know, the way they used to, or in the, in the same, um, ability that they, you know, used to, or whatever, they tend to run, they run out of fear or they hide, right? So they'll either go into their cave and completely emotionally shut down, or they'll just pull the pin and say, this is too hard. I can't deal with this emotional stress and they'll run. What's your take on that? I fully agree. Again, we're generalizing, but this is how, what I see too in all of my couples, right? There's either a coerce response over freaking out, feeling anxious, trying to control things. That happens when we lose balance, right? Or there's a collapse response. And for most men who are very logical, who want to have a game plan, um, super high performing, really smart, because my husband is like this, right? They're used to doing really well at their job and having a plan for life, right? And when things get overwhelming, it's so overwhelming for their nervous system that it, it collapses. So it's a trauma response. It's out of their awareness, right? They might notice that they're kind of like hiding out a little, but for the partner, it's really obvious. It's like, it's really scary. You're losing them. You don't, it's like, I don't feel you. What is happening? You're obviously like not present or, or scared. It's like the first step is also noticing that it's, it is really obvious, even if you think that you're trying to manage, Right. And so, yeah, this has to do with generational stories around the role that you have to um, provide. But also it's like even what's really hard for the partner is like you might if you're a woman in this dynamic, I used to think, oh, I don't have those expectations for you. And I didn't realize that he was fighting against other ghosts, right? Not even me, yep. the past and his family and history, right? And trauma patterns for men generations ago. Right. So the first thing for the partners to notice, it's much bigger than me. It's not really a about me. And they are needing, really, they're needing help. This does not mean that the partner now has to support, right? You're the partner. You don't have to be the therapist. Uh, that's a really, really good point. I've said that to people before. You're, the partner doesn't have to be the therapist. I love that you said that. Uh, I'm so glad you say that to people because it's it's such a default role, like, and you see them freaking out, you know, right? You have more awareness generally. So it's like something is happening. They're needing help. You want to support however we fall. And this happened to me and I am a therapist. So it was hard for me to know the boundaries over like getting them to open up or creating a safe space, but you can fall into cycles of codependency where then you're actually enabling them to shut down and also avoiding conflict. And then suddenly you're just stuck in a situation where you feel disconnected and you're not actually solving the problem. So what that man needs to do is get into a safe space, right? Hopefully with a therapist or a coach where they can actually have enough of a pause to feel into what's happening, have someone reflect, hey, you you are, right? You something is actually overwhelming you. What is what is this? Mostly it's around fear and insecurity, right? What is the fear? What is that? that I'll lose it all, that that she'll think that I'm a bad husband, that she'll leave me, that my job will fire me, that they'll think I'm not it's around self-worth most of the time, right? And then that man needs to get the help. 
into creating more resilience and resources in their nervous system, into creating more emotional capacity. This means capacity to tolerate more stress, right? And instead of like disengage and collapse, actually like have some self-soothing over, I'll take a breath. Maybe I'll take some self-care. I'll take a walk around the park, have a therapy session, um, notice what's actually happening, deal with my emotions, cry, scream, whatever I need to do so that then the level 10, right? What this looks like once you actually get to do it is eventually I'll go sit down with my partner and instead of hiding out, be like, hey, honey, this feels super, super vulnerable for me to share. I feel nervous, but I'm feeling super insecure over earning less money uh, or the situation at work. And my big fear is that you'll think that I'm failing you or I'm being a bad husband. And like, it just takes me to the place where I feel like I'm failing you and this is horrible and I feel so afraid. It's like, wow, can you imagine having that conversation? Right. Like this is actually what's happening. And the natural response with that is like, oh my gosh, empathy. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's very rare. And if it does come up where the person attacks you for that, they might not be your person. They might have their own work to do, you know, like usually, and usually when somebody shows up from a place of vulnerability, I know that if, if a partner that I had said to me, Hey, you know, my income just got cut drastically. I'm really feeling insecure about it. I, I feel like I can't be a provider or this and that. I would be like, Oh my gosh, you don't need to provide for me. Like, are you crazy? Like, I love you for who you are. You know what I mean? It's like you, you would never be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you got fired from work. You're useless. Like nobody says that. (laughs) Well, maybe not nobody, but you know, it's, it's very rare that you would hear that these days as opposed to be received with empathy and compassion. And one of the things that you did say there, which I think is really important for men to hear because a lot of men, um, you know, women are much more likely to, uh, go out and seek, advice and women like to talk about their problems, whereas men don't. They like to close it off and pretend like everything is okay and go into their shell. And actually this, I I just saw a post on Instagram that November is mental health awareness month and especially for men because 76% of suicides are men. And so we're not talking about this enough where um, what I believe therapy to be is a safe space to get a third party unbiased opinion about situations that you're going through as you go through them. It's not a quick fix that you go in for three sessions and you come out and you're a shiny new star. It's that person that you have in your corner to help you get through all the different seasons that you're going to have in your life and help you look at it from a different perspective. Because a lot of people will talk to their partner, they'll get resistance of some sort, or they'll get not the not the response that they were looking for. And then all of a sudden it turns into defensiveness and argument, not feeling good enough, another hit on their self-esteem rather than hearing the, this, maybe even the same conversation from a different person outside of their relationship that can help them think about it more logically, more well-rounded and, and come to different conclusions so that they can then come back to their relationship feeling supported, like they've got all the information. Exactly. Yeah. So therapy alone is a way of helping you deal with big emotions and also having the perspective over un, like unlocking those patterns 
so that you can actually see things for how they are. And I love to weave in an element of like, it's like relationship mentoring, right? Because I share really transparently over, okay, um, you can do whatever you want. You are the one that will decide, but this is what works for healthy couples, right? This is what works for most people in this situation. You can take it or leave it, right? And so we sometimes wonder like, I have people tell me like, Gabby, I thank you for helping me think through this, but also I just wanted you to tell me what to do or give me my opinion, right? And I'm never going to give you like my opinion advice, but I do say like, hey, this is how I view it. This is what works for for healthy couples. This is what works for this and that, right? And um, couples therapy is a safe space where if you think about, I'm hearing you guys have this conversation, but I can't bring this up without my partner getting defensive or it just feels like we try to have this conversation just like you're saying and something gets off track and suddenly we're fighting about three different things and we don't even know what we're fighting about right or um it just there's no one to really contain my partner and they go into collapse so I end up kind of like taking care of them instead of being able to say yeah or avoiding the topic because you know that it's too sensitive so that you just don't bring it up and then you let that particular thing annoy you over and over and over again because you're not addressing it exactly yeah yeah so I know that one of the things that you work on particularly with couples and this is an area that I'm really fascinated by is the the attachment theory stuff So I would love to jump into this as sort of our final topic of the podcast, because I think there is so much to be unpacked here in terms of the willingness to dive into this type of work, right? And uh, for those of you that aren't aware with the attachment styles, there's a couple books out there, but my my personal favorite, which I've read three times, is is the book called Attached. And um, it really gives the three different kinds of attachment styles. And I would love for you to just touch on some of the dynamics of those three different attachment styles and how, you know, that roller coaster, anxious, avoidant, uh, push pull relationship, like how people can manage that, especially from a communication perspective. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I love this. So that's a big topic. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, of course. This could be like three podcasts in one, right? Um, So attachment styles refers to the way that you relate to your partner around how comfortable you are with intimacy, communication, connection, and just like letting them into your life in general too. And this takes a spectrum over there's like one side of the spectrum that is an anxious attachment and the other side of the spectrum that is avoidant attachment. So avoidant is the conflict avoidance that maybe we've heard. And anxious is a person who overly worries, right? And so those are the two sides of the spectrum. I'll say more about them. But at the center is a secure relationship. So secure relationship is a real thing, but it's also like the ideal, right? That we're working towards as we can sometimes veer off the path and go into like, oh, suddenly I got scared and I forgot, right? My, My tools. But secure means that you are connected, that you can share openly, that you can have deep conversation over sharing your insecurity and have your partner respond. Um, secure means that you're inviting them into your life. It would be the person that you 
meet and start dating and introduces you to their family when it's time and makes you feel comfortable and there's consistency and lots of trust. And it's just like, okay, nothing comes up that makes me feel mistrust. Um, When there's a problem, they bring it up when it happens, right? Instead of letting it build or bringing it up in a super aggressive way. It's just these people who have the skills, even though it might be people who have never even had like deep therapy, right? They have the communication skills and the awareness to share. So that is like what we are working towards always. And then on the other sides of the spectrum are these two people that usually how this happens is that an anxiously avoid person will match up with an avoidant, right? Because it's like we're so attracted to the person who is most different from us in terms of these dynamics. And we're also really attracted to people who will help us grow, This is how it is. Relationships are a portal for self-growth, even deeper than we could go ourselves, right? But that also means that the person that I'm attracted to will trigger my deepest wounds. Yeah? So this is why people tell me it feels like a roller coaster, right? Because the anxiously attached person is someone who will worry a lot about the relationship. If energy is off balance, it's a clingy person. And on the other side of the spectrum, it's a withdrawing person. So you can think of that, right? It's like a dance where the anxious avoidant will take a step forward when something happens And the avoidant will take a step back. So it's this rubber band effect where there's like something happens, like your partner says they'll be home at 8 p.m. and it's 8.30 and they're still not home and you're waiting and dinner's hot on the table, right? Then they get home and they're like, hey, honey, sorry, and you don't feel heard, right? And you're like, hey, you should have written. And it starts feeling like tension. It can be something simple like that. And then when there's tension, what do you do? Do you take a step forward into, hey, let's talk about this, right? Or do you take a step back and you're like, oh, no, I don't want to fight. Let's like, this is no big deal. Let's minimize, minimize, minimize. That's how you know. So you can wonder, what would be my reaction, a moment of conflict, disagreement, stress when my partner is upset? Am I the person who initiates into like, hey, this bothered me. I want to talk about this. Um, Anxiously avoid people tell me things like, I want to talk about it right away so we can resolve it as fast as we can, right? Like, I think so much of my partner, I want more connection is a lot of what they say. I want to know more of you. I want us to work on our relationship. It'll be the person who looks for the workshop, who reads all the books, who is listening to this podcast, right? Like, and they have such a good intention. They will always be the person who is fighting for connection. So that's the beautiful thing they have. The beautiful thing they have is they will always be the person to reach out and to hold the other person's hand and not let go of the relationship. Right. That's me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Holding on way too long sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. The other side of the spectrum is like you could hold on way too long. You could get really high energy. You can start obsessing. So when I said you think about it 10 times and you say it once, that's avoid, that's anxious attachment. 
right? You're always thinking about it. When something starts going wrong, it takes up all of your energy, right? And what this is really driven by is fear of abandonment. So anxiously attached will say like, I don't want to end this relationship because I don't want to be alone and maybe I'm going to die alone and there's no one there for me. And the fears get really big. It's like a really big leap between like, I'm going to die alone and like, oh, a breakup. (laughs) But it feels, it's like a primal fear of survival inside. That's attachment science, right? We have this um, all our life, right? From the cradle to the grave is what we say in attachment science. It's just like your whole life. This is what you needed as a baby, as a little girl. And this is what you'll need until you die, right? You're always going to need someone there. And avoidant attachment is um, most common in men because it's the way that they're um, trained by society. But this is not a gender thing. This is a human thing. So it could be men or women. Avoidant attachment, what they have that is so beautiful is they will be the person to take a step back so things don't get out of control when emotions are flying really high. So if someone starts yelling and screaming and wants more connection, right, the avoidantly attached person will be like, hey, calm down. I don't want us to grow into a big fight. I don't want this to get out of control. I'm really afraid that you'll get like violent or we'll just like not be able to work through this. So what they do is they either leave mentally in that they shut down and you'll see their face like kind of go blank, disengage and like I'm not having this conversation anymore or they'll leave physically and be like, okay, this is too much. Let me go take a walk around the block or go into the other room, or go to work early and stay late, right? And and then you're avoiding the issue. So really what they have is a really deep longing over, they want to be okay. And when things get too heated, it feels like a problem that we're not going to be able to solve. So what I do is I kind of play dead, I collapse, and I let it be. And it's a really illogical thing because when I let it be, it's my way of maintaining this relationship. It's my way of it not burning up in flames. It's my way of fighting for us not to break up. Let's just leave things as they are and sweep them under the rug, right? But what we know is, of course, that doesn't work because it builds up and then you just trip over it later. Yeah. And I mean, that's obviously one extreme, right? Like not, you know, not all anxious people will get that heated. It definitely can happen. But um, I think one of the things with avoidance that I I see, because I tend to pick them, (laughs) is, um, is, is that they have the emotional pullback once there's something required of them. A lot of the time it will be like when the commitment starts to come up or when the, uh, you know, the next stage of the relationship or that all of a sudden they have to show up to an event or something like that. And it's if it doesn't fit with how they want to manage their life, it can be a bit of a pullback situation. I find. Yeah. So I don't know if that's something that you could touch on. How does how to sort of analyze that or manage that because it's like they will be secure and engaged until it doesn't suit them. Yes. And we could do, I've gotten some questions like, 
what pushes a man away and how to love. We could do a whole podcast on this because I love it, right? It's Yeah, we might have to have part two. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. And I, I get men and I hear these stories. So what they will say is where it's like, I don't want to feel smothered. I don't want to feel pressured. When you're pressuring me to meet your parents, I feel this tension inside, right? Like, and there's this big fear over like, I'm going to be like engulfed by your world and I won't be able to be me. And what happens with avoidant men that you're talking about is like, it's just really important for them to feel like they have their personal freedom and that they're not being coerced again. Yes. So the coerced collapse is a good way to think about it, right? If your partner's always collapsing, shutting down, is there something you're doing to coerce, control, like pressure? That might be something that is happening too, because you're always feeding each other off, right? Like if he didn't withdraw as much, you wouldn't push as much. So it's not your fault. But when you push, you cause him to withdraw further. And when he withdraws further and shuts down, it scares you more. So you push more and you're both causing that that you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. That's that push, pull, push, pull, emotional roller coaster. That's the emotional roller coaster. So with avoidant men, what happens is a few times it might be like they are maybe not serious. Sometimes if it's like early dating, sometimes they're just not that into you. We have to say that too. But if we're talking about relationship, usually what it is, is they want to feel the freedom of doing these plans like without coercion. So a big tip in communication is make your communication an invitation. So if you're like, hey, honey, I have this uh, brunch with my parents on Saturday. And you can say it feels like I do sometimes low, middle, and high importance, or like um, of a one to 10, it feels like a five level importance or an eight level importance. How important is it to you that they be there, right? So if it's like brunch with my friends every Sunday, it might be three level importance. But if it's like meeting my parents, nine level importance, eight level importance, I really want you to be here is what you're saying, right? So that helps them show up when you really need them. That's so they understand how important this is, right? So you can say, hey, honey, I have brunch with my parents on Saturday, right? It feels like an eight-level importance. It feels like I would want you to be there. Do you want to come? And then they so say- it's an invitation, not it's an, an invitation. Do you? So you always ask. You're asking for consent, basically. Now, here's a trap. I see this a lot. And women don't notice that we do this. And we do this, right? I'm going to call us out because I've done it too. They say- oh, I'm not sure I have work. I have golf. I'm not sure I might want to rest. And if you get mad, then it wasn't really an invitation. You were trying to like force it, right? That's the coercion or the passive aggressiveness. Or... Yeah. Yeah. So if you're like, I have brunch with my parents, it's a really important thing, right? So you have every right to have a reaction. Uh, so you can just say like, hey, this is really important, right? If we're going to move forward in our relationship, this feels like something big. If they are the right partner, they'll come through in that moment, right? And then that's when you'll know. So you're going for the truth instead of going for getting them to do whatever you want. Uh, I love that. I feel like I just learned something. I actually took a couple notes while you were talking there. 
making your communication an invitation, not coercion. I think that that is so powerful. And I know I'm really guilty of that. That's why I wrote it down. It's, you know, I'll sort of do the invitation with an expectation attached to it. And you can totally have expectations and say like, hey, I, I would really want you to be, this feels really important for me. So if they're not coming through for you in the way that you need, this might not be the person that has like the same either values or life vision or pri- prioritizing the same things like family, right? Um, so I'll give a simpler example. That's in case that one is too charged. Um, it's like I'm having holiday shopping trip. So I want to go holiday shopping on Saturday. Hey, honey, do you want to come with me? We can make a day of it. And they say, no, no, I'd rather not, right? Like I, I want to go to golf and I can go shopping for my side of the family another day or whatever. And you're like, oh, but I really wanted you to come. And then you can make a new plan together, right? But if they still say, no, I really don't want to go, then you're like, okay, um, sure, take it, right? But if you get mad and you're like, you should have come, like you never come with me, then that wasn't really an invitation in which like they could say yes or no. Yeah, yeah. It was like, I'm telling you, but, but, but adding a question mark on the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this is like, it's really hard. That's why avoidant men, like the example that you're saying, we need some flexibility. So these two sides of the extreme, we're always moving towards more of the center. Um, because I, if I say, do you want to do this with me? And you say no, and I get upset, then it wasn't really an invitation. It was a coercion. And Men have a special bullshit radar, right? It's like, it's really obvious that you were trying to force me. <laughs> like, we think they don't, they know they're really smart about that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. They're like, if I don't say yes to this, I'm not having lunch for the next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm yeah. sleeping on the couch. <laughs> and the wonderful thing is it, it seems like I'm saying that you should give up expectations. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is... I want you to create so much safety that he can say no. And then what you'll have is the truth. And with the truth, you'll be able to see if this is the relationship that fills my needs, that is enough for what I want. If I'm not manipulating and controlling him, does he show up for me? Does he value the things things that that I value? Does he want to be as interdependent, meaning like merging our two worlds together as much as I want? Or does he want something different? And you can reflect that then, right? But what I find is when men are allowed to say no, then they feel really free. And then if they're really in it, they start saying yes, because they want to. Like if you're like, no, and then no, I don't want to go to holiday shopping. Okay. And then suddenly you're doing something on Saturday and they're like, Hey honey, where are you? I'll meet you at the mall. And then they'll show up. So funny as you're talking, I'm like, yep, I remember exactly when this happened. (laughs) You know, it's so, it's so easy to relate to these stories when you're talking about them. Cause I was like, yep, yep. That happened. And yes, that happened. So with the anxious avoidance dance, as I like to call it, and as my therapist likes to call it, what are some of the ways that people in that type of relationship dynamic can work together to, you know, both give each other some slack and not trigger each other's attachment style? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first one is talking about knowing your attachment style individually and then having the conversation together. 
So this is one of the easy ones where awareness is a big piece of this. Just knowing that there's these two styles and that half of the population is one and half of the population is another, and it's not your fault, it's just one of two, is very normalizing. It's like, oh, when we have a fight, you need space and 30 minutes, and I want to talk right away. Okay, this is just, we see our differences, right? And then once we see our differences, it's normal to go into, so what do we do about it, right? And so what you're doing is actually, we'll need, if you're thinking of two sides of the spectrum, we'll need both of you to take one step forward, right? Because we know if one person takes a step forward and the other person takes a step back, that dance gets activated, right? So if you're working on this solo, you will create a change in your relationship, but eventually it won't be enough for you to change the whole dance, right? So if you're working on this together, the first step is knowing this. And then second, you're just looking for ways. So what you're doing is actually you're taking your two truths, right? And softening them. So you're thinking of like, how can we meet more in the middle, right? And so this means having conversations around these triggers, right? Like if we have a fight and you need three hours and I need to talk right away, First of all, let's inject some self-soothing techniques. That's what we do first, right? What helps serve you? Communication is not the only way to resolve the conflict, right? First, you can go to talking with someone, taking a walk, breath, right? Journaling. Yeah. Journaling is a, a huge one. That's a calling huge one your for mom, me. Yeah. calling your friend who has a healthy relationship, um, calling a therapist, right? And just like organizing your thoughts. I love that you said journaling. It can be on your notes app on the phone. And you can think about this is what most bothered me, right? Mm -hmm. And then a big one is talk about your feelings because the thoughts are really valid, but the stories in your head spiral out of control really easily, right? It's like when you came home for dinner, I thought like you don't care about me. And then what they'll do is just be like, but I love you. I care about you so much. They'll just like dismiss your story because it's probably not true right? Your worst fears are like easy to dismiss. So instead, you can have a conversation outside of the heated moment. So when the trigger happens, that is not the moment to have the conversation, right? You'll talk about it next time and be like, okay, you need three hours. I want to talk right away. Can we have an agreement over like, you'll take two hours and then we'll come back and just like try to have a conversation or leave it for another day, but just acknowledge that this is happening. Right. And then you'll start to see what specific like algorithm you have as your own couple into creating a timeout, but also both of you coming back together, for example, because different things work for different people. Yeah, I, I made a note at um, of a, a timestamp when you said something that was really, really interesting that I actually want to use for the promotional material because you said something so powerful, and it was it was really around like you know managing our managing our own reaction and and under and and understanding what they need. And what we need in that moment, and obviously we can only control what we need, but being able to really like understand, okay, if this person needs space, I'm going to give them space and not keep pushing because that's going to make it worse, right? Exactly. If they need a timeout, if they need a timeout, then, you know, they can have their timeout. 
they can have, and it doesn't mean that I am bad. I'm not, they're not interested in my feelings. They don't care about me, blah, blah, blah. Whatever story we want to tell ourselves, it literally just means that they have their own way of processing this situation and being respectful of that way of processing it from, you know, our partner's perspective. It's like learning about love languages, right? How people give and receive love, same kind of thing. Exactly. It's totally a relationship style that is different from mine. What's really cool is mine, again, in this dance, since it's the opposite, it's the hardest, but it's also the thing that'll make me most grow, right? Which is like, damn, Gabby, I just, I don't want to grow. I just want to be connected, right? But it, it, it makes you a better human and it makes him a better man when you work together. It makes you a better woman because it helps you like take a breath, manage your own emotions, get back with clarity, talk about, hey, this is what I felt, right? Instead of this is what you did, you made me feel, right? You take responsibility and you're like, this is what I'm feeling. It has to do with, with this, right? Let's, let's try to see if it's mine or if it's ours together, right? So it will actually help you grow and ripple out into all your relationships. It'll help you know what to do at work when something is stressing you out. It'll help you know how to have a conversation with your boss or your clients, right? It'll help you also support your friends when they react differently than you, or they have a different reaction in conflict than you when you have a fight with your in-laws or your parents. So it will actually ripple out to all relationships. What you're actually doing is you're creating more options. If my knee-jerk reaction is to rush towards my partner and talk it through oh, wow, now I have more options into maybe I can take a break. Maybe I can take a time out. Maybe I can take a breather. Maybe we can have a conversation or maybe we have the conversation in two days. You're creating more resilience, more tolerance, like more options in terms of emotional intelligence, more space. Yeah, I, I really like the point that you made about like if the emotions are heated and you're feeling particularly triggered, not dealing with it in that moment so that you can allow yourself the time to sort of calm down, think about things, come come back with more clarity and more, maybe a plan or, or um, more articulated than just sort of lashing out or, or, or just saying, you did this, like you came home at 8.30 instead of eight, that, that example, right? And we could mean, oh, they don't respect my time. They didn't realize that I was cooking when really it could have been a car accident on the highway that delayed their trip you know, that was going to be totally unexpected. So we, you know, not sort of blaming and just throwing it in their face and actually giving yourself a chance to (laughs) process the emotions before, before having that conversation, I think is really important. But on the other hand, not leaving it so long that you're then bringing it up three months down the road and saying, Hey, remember that time that you came home at eight 30 instead of eight, that really made me feel disrespected and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wait a minute, you didn't even talk about that. Like that was that day that there was that huge accident on the highway. Like exactly. You know, yeah. Right? And you've become been bottling also it avoidant. up. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been and bottling it, it up for three months and saying, Yeah, but you know, you always come home late, like that time when you came home at eight thirty and blah, blah, blah. It's like, wait a minute. That was totally not my fault. <laughs> exactly. And I didn't even know that this was an issue, right? Until yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you're building this resentment. And as you said at the very beginning of the episode, that um Oh, the amount of energy that it, that it sucks out of us to hold on to this information for so long and bottle it up and bottle it up and it eats away at us and we're spiraling in our head and all of this 
we're spending all this mental energy by being resentful and, you know, going over it in our head as it opposed frees to just dealing up with so it. much energy. Like I have one, we, we talk about a lot, we have a lot of agreements, but I have like one communication rule in my house. That's like the biggest, it's the only one that we both call a rule. And the rule is if there's a problem, you have to use your words and tell me if not, I will operate as if there's no problem. Mm, love that. I used to have like my mom, like, um, slamming doors and like (laughs) pots and pans in the kitchen. She would start cleaning when she was angry and she wouldn't use her words. Right. And it was so scary for my dad. I remember like I learned also through, this is why I'm a couples therapist. My parents got divorced. And so my agreement with my husband is that, right. If I'm slamming shit, operate as if there's no problem. Right. If you're grumpy and stressed, like I'll ask you like, Hey, you okay. But I'm not going to start prying and be like, what is happening? Cause I know that it takes me to this space in my head where I'm like, is he upset? Is our relationship in trouble? What is going on? And it sucks all the energy out. And I've noticed since I do that, we have so much peace. We've built so much more trust because it's super sexy to know, Oh, you'll come towards me and you'll say, Like, if you have a problem, you'll tell me, right? You trust me enough to tell me and be, like, polite or respectful about it, even if you're upset and you're super clear, right? And that has freed up so much energy for my business. Like, my business is growing. I have so much more creativity over, like, ideas of things I want to do. We're doing more projects together. We're thinking of buying a house. Like, there's just... Now we talk about so many interesting things when I'm not worried about, like, oh, what is happening in our relationship, right? And so that's a good place to wrap up, as you were saying before, too, the part about giving them what you know that they need, even though it's like the opposite and so different from yours. I find that that's so loving, right? It's empowering, That's real love, yeah. Yeah. It's like I always tell couples, love, when you feel like love is not enough, right? What is actually missing is understanding each other. So I'm, when I hear people tell me like, I'm working so hard, you shouldn't be having to work so hard. You should be working smarter, not harder. And smarter means actually understanding your partner so deeply that you've made sense of their story. You know where the reactions come from. You know what happens, right? Oh, this triggered because they have this story, which makes sense with how he grew up, right? And now they're actually working to do things differently with you. So never alone. You're not just enabling them. You're, you're actually both doing different things. And then you're like, this now makes so much sense. So if suddenly he shuts down, it, it scares me, but it doesn't feel anymore ever again. Like, what the hell? Where did this come or a from? threat. Yeah. A threat, right? It's like, once you understand each other, you know how to love each other. Once you understand each other, you know how to give each other what you need, take up some space, right? How to support each other. I think that's the real goal, understanding each other. Oh, I love this so much. I feel like we could go on for ages. I think I might have to get you back for part two of, you know, how this integrates into the the financial side of relationships. And, and, you know, I would love to be a guest on your podcast, which is Love 101. So if you want to check out Gabby, her podcast is called Love 101. We'll link it down in the show notes as well. 
Gabby, where can people reach out to you if they're interested in working with you? Because you have dropped so much knowledge in this podcast that I'm going to be reaching out to you. So what is the best way for them to get in touch? Thank you so much. I would be honored. The fastest way to get in touch, I think of Instagram as my landing page because it's got all my links and everything. So it's Gabby Balsells. We'll link it in the show notes because the last name is a little weird to write. There you can reach out. Feel free to DM me if any of this resonates. If you want more information, I work with individual therapy, couples therapy, and coaching. And I do premarital coaching. I also do some kind of like package it over if you have an issue specifically that you want to resolve, like I have a couple who works with me around the holidays over visiting the in-laws and knowing how to make their plans <laughs> and that kind of thing, like three sessions before December, Fantastic. which yeah. is like, sometimes it's that kind of support. If you write to me, we can have a no pressure conversation and I'll always lead you towards the direction that is like most serving you. Um, I will never pressure you, of course. And you can also like reach out and I have a lot of free content on my Instagram and I have a link to my website where I have my full services if you want to check that out. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It was so lovely to meet you. I'm so glad we got introduced by my friend Jennifer. That is obviously the best way to meet other people that are doing amazing things. And I've absolutely had such a pleasure speaking to you before we jumped on the podcast and during this amazing episode. So Thank you so much. And I look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. And if you love this episode, please share it to your Instagram story and tag me at sandra.m.joe. I would be forever grateful if you left me a five-star review and sent it to a friend so that I can reach as many people as possible. For more information on my financial coaching and how we can work together, check out my website at sandrajoe.com. And until next time, have a great day and go make that money, honey. Honey.